my point of view is that over the next 10 years, the population will continue to educate themselves through parents, through their own osmosis via the internet, through the investments either from the public sector as well as the private approaches. So I think that aspirational hope and hunger and entrepreneurial ambition will continue to grow. I think that feels like a thing that will naturally continue. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.braveseha.com. Poland is a private B2B liquidation marketplace. The startup connects sellers carrying excess inventory with bulk buyers across the world. The platform incorporates pricing algorithms, dashboard analytics, and sustainability metrics to find great liquidation outcomes. Hundreds of tons of usable products that would have been incinerated or gone to landfill is now used by happy consumers instead. Manufacturers get more revenue, buyers get cheaper inventory, and the world benefits. Learn more at www.poland.tech. Hey, Adriel. Really excited to have our monthly listener Q&A. So I think we've got quite an interesting range of conversations to have, actually. So I guess the first one we got was like about Cambodia, right? What questions do we have? Yeah, I think post the Cambodia trip, I think everyone's really excited to hear reflections on non-PAM's uh, startup ecosystem, both from the founder's perspective and also like the investors, what sectors people are looking at investing in, who are the main investors there. So maybe you can start at that high level. What do you personally see in terms of the sectors that founders were building in? excited about and where the economy is headed to in the next couple of years. Yeah, Cambodia was interesting because I think so many folks were actually surprised that we were traveling to Cambodia to speak at the conference and meet the startup ecosystem because I think it never really was in your mind. I think people are very focused on Singapore, Vietnam, Indonesia, and then of course, to some extent, Philippines, Thailand, Malaysia. And Cambodia is kind of like one step out, right? So I think what was interesting is that, of course, there are other folks in Southeast Asia, right? There's Brunei, there's Laos, there's Myanmar. So I think ASEAN is a very interesting range of geographies. And I think, you know, it was a surprising for folks. For me, I think what was interesting at some level was just how energetic the country was. I think we went there and it felt like Southeast Asia, right? Obviously, the motorbikes, we almost got ran down twice along the way while we were walking at night. I think it was, you know, we were walking by the river, you could see all the various bars, you could see the businesses. So I thought there's a lot of similarities where I felt very Southeast Asian and it didn't feel weird or different or whatever it was. It was just every other Southeast Asian city, right? In terms of the capital city. And I remember that the airport was surprisingly efficient in terms of the visa on arrival process. You know, you and I was just watching them go through, right? And it was just like, everyone was just flying through the process. It was a quite serviceable airport that we could get to our destination. So I think lots of different things that kind of like stacked up to be like, it's surprisingly normal Southeast Asian country. And that's not good. That's not bad. It's just 
things are working, things are running, and people are flying in and out. And I think there's a bit of a gap because for a lot of folks, because of pandemic, because people don't really travel to Cambodia, because I think the history of Cambodia, the Khmer Rouge, and I think some of that turmoil associated with that, I think people look at it more as a tourist location rather than an economy that's looking to grow. That was, I think, my first impression. The second impression I got was, of course, about the fundamental economics of the region. And I think what was interesting was that at some level, you and I just pulled out the GDP per capita numbers just to be like, okay, where are we? How are we thinking about this? So I think what's interesting, of course, is that at the top, you have Singapore, right? With about 90,000 for GDP per capita. And then, of course, you have Thailand and Malaysia. So Malaysia is about 13,000. Thailand is about 8,000 per capita USD. And then after that, the next tranche you have is you have Indonesia, which is about 5,000. The Philippines at about 4,000. And then Cambodia is about 2,000, right? Which is similar to Laos. So I think there's a very interesting dynamic here where if you take a step back, it's like, okay, you know, people are very excited about Indonesia as a market and it's 5,000 GDP per capita for 300 million folks, right? And people are excited about Vietnam, which is also about 5,000, but of course, a much smaller population. And then you have the Philippines, which is about 4,000, which I think folks are getting more excited about these days. And then Cambodia is half that of the Philippines. So I think it's an interesting way to think through at an objective level, the maturity of the various ecosystems, right? And the GDP per capita. What was also interesting to find out was, you know, one quarter of Cambodia's GDP per capita is attributed to textiles and export. So a very strong garment industry from Chinese capital um, and exporting globally. So I think it was an interesting, non-obvious objective numbers, but also I think it was a good way to level set. And of course, we were in a capital city, of course, which is very different from the surrounding areas. But yeah, it was interesting to see where the ecosystem was at. You know, I think at the start of our trip, we were discussing what's the objective, what do you want to learn, what do you want to find out over the next couple of days. So what sort of questions do you have in mind at the start of the trip and what do you manage to answer and what do you manage to not answer? Yeah, that was actually a quite a common question because a lot of local Cambodia folks were like, hey, you know, what's your agenda? Are you looking to make deals? Why did you make on a trek here? And I was like, well, it's not really a trek, right? It was about a two-hour flight, door-to-door, maybe like three to four hours. It's not far, actually. And so I think that's one side. And also it's curiosity. And the reality was that I think nobody has really thought of Cambodia as a startup ecosystem hotspot. And so when we got an invite from the Rising Giants podcast, so check out their podcast, Max Taunton kind of reached out and was like, hey, you know, we have a conference. The biggest feeling was curiosity, you know, and that's why I asked you to say, hey, why don't you come along with me as well? Be my exploration buddy. The truth is I've previously been there primarily as a tourist, obviously helping out a little bit but also obviously visiting the Angkor Wat as well as the Killing Fields, right? And the Khmer Rouge museums. So I think I was there very much as a tourist, but not very much looking at it from, I guess, older eyes, but also professional eyes to be see like, what is the future, right? And I really wanted to meet people who had made Cambodia their home because you know, they grew up there. And I thought it was interesting actually, because there was actually quite a vibrant community. It felt like, and I think I'll share with you, Adriel, right? At the event, I was like, yeah, this conference feels like the same group of people I meet in Indonesia or Singapore. In terms of like the startup conference vibes, right? You have the founders, you have the young students, you have the expats. So it felt similar-ish in terms of persona. And so I think there were about several groups that were interesting, right? I think there were obviously the expatriates who were very much have made Cambodia or I would say 
Thailand as well as Vietnam, their home. And so Cambodia is part of their geography, right? So it's interesting to see that uh, folks from Canada, from Russia, from the US, from Europe. I think the second interesting category was folks who were in some version like a sea turtle, right? They were a refugee and then they had studied in Europe and grew up in Europe like France and then they had come back home. And maybe they're spending half the time in Cambodia and half the time outside, for example. There were folks who had one parent who was Khmer and one parent who was an expatriate or someone else. And so for them, there was a part of their exploration of their identity. There were other folks who were Khmer, but then they had you know studied somewhere else and now they're coming back. So that was an interesting group who were like that nucleus, right? And then lastly, I think obviously what was most interesting to me was actually the local university students who were wanting to be founders, grew up in Cambodia, not much regional or global exposure. But it was just very interesting. My reflection of that is just so much of entrepreneurship is really like YouTube and, you know, the internet, right? I think we're just chatting with a bunch of them and they were like, oh, I want to be a founder because I watched it on YouTube and then they hear the stories. I don't know, they're watching this TV series, but I think the concept of building technology, the resources they have on the internet, and actually English literacy was very high as well in Cambodia. I think that was also another surprising fact. I think you and I were kind of mentioning because of maybe the interface via the tourism sectors or the local population. But I think that influence and that we talked about it, right, in a previous episode, which is like some countries are landlocked, so they don't have access to the ocean, so they can't access trade. If you're language locked, that means you're not really speaking English, for example, or maybe Mandarin to some extent. Then to some extent, you're kind of locked away from the startup ecosystems, you know, wealth of substacks and information. So it's kind of interesting to see that ground up hunger, right? And so I think that's where my curiosity was bringing me, was like talking to local folks about their personal stories, about why they wanted to stay in Cambodia, why they felt like they wanted to build a technology startup in Cambodia. Yeah, no, I think the diversity of people that we met in Cambodia is definitely something that really struck me from the strong Canada, Cambodia, like diaspora flows, Australia as well to some extent. There are also a bunch of people from Hong Kong. So it's just fascinating to just see, you know, all those, the amalgamation of different cultures and nationalities just bubbling up in one conference hall that day, which I didn't expect that many sea turtles, frankly, like when getting to Phnom Penh, but that's something that we saw a lot of, right? And that's also reflected in the founder profiles that I think we met. So I think one obviously was building the healthcare pharmaceutical space was very much inspired by Walgreens and what he saw in the US, for instance, and bringing that sort right. of perspective and I guess experience in the pharmaceutical space back to Cambodia. Yeah, you know, now that you mentioned it, that talent and refugee flow actually reminds me a lot of the stories we hear on the podcast about the Vietnam War. So, you know, Will Fan actually shares a similar journey about his family migrating and escaping to Australia and then him eventually returning to Southeast Asia even though he lost some family members along that journey, right? So he shares that in the previous podcast. I think it reminds me actually, I mean, because, you know, Cambodia was actually quite seriously impacted in the same decade as the Vietnam War in terms of the bombing campaigns but also the later kind of like civil war with the Khmer Rouge but then also the security state that came right before that and then the Vietnamese invasion after that. So I think there's an interesting decade that is quite correlated and I think I didn't appreciate it I remember you and I were discussing it was like oh wait you know we always think about Southeast Asia in terms of like the Vietnam War you know we talk about it in terms of these major milestones of decolonization and so so forth and then it was interesting to slot Cambodia's history in parallel with all these other states 
I do want to come back to that point about what are the main countries involved in Cambodia's development today. I think the Chinese and the Vietnamese are obviously big names that we have heard when we spoke to different founders in different industries and asking them, so who are your main competitors? And strangely, it's not a local Cambodian company, but it's a large like Vietnamese conglomerate or Chinese conglomerates with their inflows capital. I think we also met people in the startup space who were from mainland China and they relocated with a whole bunch of friends, families, and they're like communities, housing communities of, of Chinese people as well. So that migration from, I guess, up north down to Cambodia is also very interesting there. Yeah, I think we was very surprised to hear that the national security of Cambodia is either pro-China or pro-Vietnam. And actually, once they said it, it was like not surprising as well, because, you know, like there's Cambodia, then there's Vietnam. And then there's China, right? China and Cambodia doesn't share a border. And so actually, to some extent, it's a strategic defensive deterrent, right? Because Vietnam has invaded Cambodia in the past, not just once, but multiple times in the past. And so China has been that offshore balance of a Cambodia perspective. So I think it was very interesting from a national security side to be like, oh, you know, there's a pro-Vietnam side business lobby, and then there's a pro-China offshore balancing dynamic, right? But then you take a step back and you're like, yeah, it kind of makes sense as well historically, which is that there have been multiple waves of emigration from the Chinese country during the, you know, I was reading about how the Qing dynasty, when they were like conquering South and then they was taking over the Ming dynasty and so, so forth. And then people were just like running South. They had a Southern Ming. And after that, the Southern Ming went south into Vietnam and probably Cambodia and Laos today. And so I think it's a very interesting historical ways of emigration. I mean, that's interesting, right? How you know those historical conflicts have trickled into the sort of economic development that we see in Cambodia today. The Chinese initiative, like One Belt, One Road, and Long Pen is, you know, we'll have a new swanky international airport funded by the One Belt, One Road initiative. I thought that was just super fascinating. Both the design of the airport and you know, just how it's been funded. And I guess you could even expect Chinese capital to play a significant role in the growth of Cambodian startups over the next decade. I think that's already starting to happen when I see potential asset managers representing Chinese family officers, LPs who want to diversify their assets into startups, whether it's Cambodian startups or Southeast Asian startups, and they are parking some money in Cambodia, actually which is interesting as well for me. Yeah, it was very interesting to hear, like you said, the flow of talent is one thing, then the flow of capital. And I think it all feels new to us now, but on a historical basis, this is not the last wave of emigration. It's not the first. It's like over thousands of years of emigration. One interesting fact was that for the Cambodian startups, they felt like a lot of their competitors were Vietnamese startups that were very comfortable expanding to Cambodia. And I hadn't really heard about that, but I think it makes sense, right? I mean, your adjacent neighbors, it's clear transportation links and the kind of like social economic dynamics are relatively similar, right? In many ways. So I thought it was quite interesting, not obvious when you're outside, but super obvious once you're there, right? So it was a very interesting learning. I mean, I think we did come across that over certain occasions where we've met Every tech founders from Thailand, Vietnam, thinking of expanding into Cambodia as a next market, or some, I think we've also met one every tech founder, which is covering both like Myanmar and Cambodia, then 
looking to expand the other way into like Thailand and Vietnam afterwards. So it does seem like that geography of all different countries is probably a natural expansion marker for one another. Yeah. And what's interesting is that there is actually a capital difference in the markets, right? So Vietnam is actually a lot of capital formation for venture capital. So I think one of the big complaints for the Cambodians was that they can't raise as much capital as their Vietnamese counterparts, and to a lesser extent, the Thai startups, which are somewhere in between. So I think there was an interesting component where the talent could be somewhat equally distributed, but the capital is not equally distributed in terms of capital deployment and allocation. So it actually changes the competitive dynamics, right, of the competition of various startups that are in the same job, same vertical, but also potential competitors in terms of geography. Yeah, and I think just quickly on the point about capital markets, I do think it's true that we don't see as much like regional or local VCs in Cambodia, but what I was quite surprised was to see like global impact investors, Korean impact investors, even regional impact investors being quite active there. So yeah, investing in startups, um, whether it's agri-tech, pharmaceuticals, healthcare, education. So I think some local Cambodian founders shared that education and healthcare are probably the two most hottest sectors right now in Cambodia to build for. Yeah, I think the education sector in Cambodia has been relatively underinvested in compared to next door neighbors like Thailand and Vietnam. So there's obviously a lot of opportunity for the private sector. And hopefully I think the public sector kind of like invests more into the infrastructure and the teacher training and retention needed to do well. So given that short three, four days trip in Cambodia and numerous conversations we've had with founders, investors across the ecosystem, what are your predictions for Cambodia over the next five to 10 years? Are you going to start investing in companies there? You know, is there going to be unicorn outcomes in Cambodia? What sort of sectors can we expect to see being very heavily invested and heavily built in? Well, I think the easiest thing to predict is that there's a succession underway for the political and therefore I think the military and economic dynamics for Cambodia. So I think everyone's waiting for what the second generation leadership is going to do in terms of they are well-educated, they are clearly professionals, but it is a change in leadership. And so I think it'll be interesting to see how that trickles down to the rest of the economy. I think nobody's bearish. I think everybody's bullish on that transition, but I think it'll be interesting to observe and watch. I think you and I were discussing that there's actually a lot of political transitions across the Southeast Asia in this decade. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Assuming the succession is smooth and I think it's business as usual with some like business reopening and further liberalization. My point of view is that over the next 10 years, the population will continue to educate themselves through parents, through their own osmosis via the internet, through the investments we talked about it from outside, either from the public sector in terms of like more grant or donation oriented, but also Teach for Cambodia as well as the private approaches. So I think that aspirational hope and hunger and entrepreneurial ambition will continue to grow. I think that feels like a thing that will naturally continue. And it's not obvious to say, but I want to say that out loud. That being said, I think capital formation will continue to be a challenge. I think Cambodia historically was on the blacklist for many financial institutions back during the days of the Golden Triangle and the drug routes and so forth. So I think ability to move money into Cambodia as well as deploy there and get that money out continues to be a concern. So I think capital formation will be continue to be, I think, have that uh, hangover effect for some time. So I expect that I think there'll be more Cambodian founders over time, naturally servicing their own local markets. And I think they're going to increasingly 
continue to build companies, maybe register them in Singapore in order to benefit from the legal standards that Singapore has. I think they will continue to tap capital from regional, comma, impact, comma, Thai, comma, Vietnam investors. In terms of startup attractiveness, I think that obviously there are companies who are going to be servicing global needs and regional needs. So that can be built from anywhere. And if they happen to be built from Cambodia or power to them, I think there's also going to be startups that are servicing the domestic population. And there's 17 million. I think the tricky part is that for a lot of the startup economics out there, they're kind of looking at a large market size and a large total addressable market in the billions. And so I think they're looking at Indonesia, right? With 300 million folks. They're looking at Vietnam with 100 million folks. And then Cambodia is at 17 million, which is an order magnitude smaller. So when you have a country with about 17 million, and of course you add maybe Laos, which is another 8 million folks. I think there's going to be an interesting decision. And what I could potentially imagine is like two sets of startups that come out. One is they could be, like you said earlier, a Thai or Vietnamese or Cambodian or Laotian startup that is targeting those four combined markets, maybe like agriculture or some sort of commonality, right? Maybe it's like natural resources or logistics. So something that kind of like has that natural web. The second I can imagine is maybe some sort of like deep play where you're just focusing on Cambodia, then maybe Laos, but very focused on multiple blades of monetization. So you're just not doing just pharmaceuticals, for example, you're doing healthcare and you're doing shipping and you're doing doctor training, multiple blades of monetization where nobody wants to really come into that space, but then you're able to build multiple revenue streams that build up a large enough market size for that size. Lastly, you know, it could be a company that is in Singapore or somewhere in the region and they're planning to expand the Cambodia as a target market. So that could be one way that Cambodia comes up as a geography for service or business expansion. So yeah, as long as Cambodia continues to have the security and stability that allows the economy to continue growing, the economy will slowly improve. You know, at the end of the day, you know, it reminds me of this phrase that I think another VC shared with me and what she said was, hey, I think maybe folks are overly optimistic in the next 10 years, but overly pessimistic over the next 50 years. I think that's a very good way to think about Southeast Asia as a whole, generally. And I think it resonated with me a lot, which is that I think the VC outcome requirement that a company has to reach $100 million of revenue within 10 years is a very aggressive growth path, which works for some folks and obviously creates the economics for VC funds that exist. So I think for those that works, it works. However, I just think to myself, like, there's so much opportunity to build in Cambodia, right? We actually met a whole bunch of expatriates, Filipino founders, Singaporean founders in Cambodia who are just building schools, building local logistics, building local groceries, building local cooking, right? This is a bunch of fundamental stuff that if you build, you can build a really good, solid business that makes money and creates jobs and pays for your family. And eventually, it can take you maybe 10, 20, 30, 40 years to become a very large company. But, you know, what's the rush, right? From my perspective, like, Din Tai Fung is, which is another episode that I released, is a story about someone who built effectively a billion-dollar company. He only started building a company when he was 31. He pivoted in 45 to start doing dumplings. And then it only became successful in his 60s. Like, that's a great story. That's a great outcome. And he didn't take any VC dollars, right? So I don't know. I love Din Tai Fung. My wife likes Din Tai Fung. Like, it's a great restaurant chain. So what I'm trying to say here is like, if you look at it from my forecast as like a VC hat, I'm not sure how many VC economic outcomes are really going to happen 
within the country of Cambodia. But it doesn't need to be, right? It could happen maybe 20 or 30 years of continued growth, education, fundamentals. And then it starts generating the entrepreneurs that kind of like access the global capital markets very easily, right? So I think maybe I'm just using my Southeast Asian hat, which is like, hey, this is a long run future building exercise. So for me, if a Cambodian founder talks to me, I'll happily have a conversation and see where it's a fit. But just because I have an economic mandate that I need to fit the bracket in doesn't mean that I'm not optimistic about the country as a whole. So I think that's the awkward role tension that I go through. So at the end of the day, it goes back to your first question. It's like, what questions do we have, right? And for me, it's like, I'm glad I got to meet lots of interesting, hungry folks who want to make the country better. And it makes me happy as a Southeast Asian that this is going to happen over the long term. And I don't need to create transactions within 10 years for me to feel like it was an inspiring and heartwarming and nice meetings to have talking about the future. And I can only hope that the future gets better for Cambodia and for so many countries in Southeast Asia. Yeah, and I think that's been a great reflection session on our short trip to Cambodia from, you know, multiple perspectives, whether historical or the national security part the trade links it has with Vietnam, Thailand, China, and some hopefully optimistic predictions we have over the next five to 10 years. But overall, you know, very excited about the energy that we felt in Phnom Penh and can't wait to see what founders with that on that trip go on to do over the next five to 10 years as well. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.